0: Let's pray together. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Lord Jesus, as we come and we receive your word and we look at your life, we pray we would surrender all to your authority. You are the King of kings. You are the one who sets up princes and tears them down. You are the one who reigns in perfect justice over all things, and we pray that you would be the Lord of this church and the Lord of our lives, that as we study your word, as we receive what you have given us today, that you would shape our hearts to joyfully submit to your reign in all things. We thank you that we're not submitting to a cruel tyrant or a negligent dictator, but one who is faithful and good and has set his love on us. And I pray we would just fix our eyes on you and on your gospel this morning as we open your word. We pray that in your name. Amen. Taxes. Everyone hates taxes. Taxes. And you know who really hates taxes? Americans. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, I visited Washington, DC. And we went on like a, a tour bus to see the sites. You know, and you know, here's the Capitol building. And here's the Washington Monument. And the tour guide said, on your uh, left is the Smithsonian Museum of uh, Natural History with a new insect exhibit. And on your right, uh, speaking of insects, is the IRS building. Uh, And everyone laughs, right, because it's hilarious, because we're good Americans. And we know to be a good American, you need to hate paying your taxes. Uh, You need to uh, have some kind of animosity towards the government, particularly when it comes to when they ask for your money. Some of that has to go back, I would think, to our, you know, our founding fathers. Uh, our country was found in part on a rejection of an authority, right? Boston Tea Party, baby. Get that stuff out of here. No taxation without representation. That's what we're all about, right? Uh, that's the American ethos. And it's particularly these days also uh, more the conservative American ethos. So it's not just no taxation without representation. It's all taxation is theft, Right? We don't want any of that. We want the government totally out of everything. We have an issue with authority, particularly the government's authority. The question for us then is what is the Christian's view of civil authority? If we are citizens of heaven, what do we do with our citizenship in this world? It's all taxation theft. What, what should we think about the role of the civil government of the nation that we are in. Well, the good news is our world is not so distant from the ancient world as we might think. In our passage today, we're going to see that that same tension being in this world, but also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That same tension existed in the first century. So today we're in Matthew 22. We are looking at the final week of Jesus's life. Uh, here he is in Jerusalem, he's just days away from the cross, he's cleansed the temple, he's been telling parables, and the tensions with the religious leaders have been heating up. They're increasing in their, uh, the awkwardness of their relationship. The religious leaders keep coming at him and he says something profoundly wise and they have to walk away and make a new plan, and today that's what they do. They've tried to discredit him in several ways already, and today they're going to take a political angle. They're going to try to discredit him with the civil authorities. So let's go ahead, let's get into our passage here starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So as I said, this has been a chess match. Right. Jesus and the religious leaders represented here by the Pharisees. And at this point in the chess match, they realize they're up against a grandmaster. He knows what he's doing. Everything they throw at him, all these pawns they try to do, you know, send to deal with him, don't work. And so they need to step back and they need to make a plan. And the plan here is to entangle him in his words. They want to set some kind of trap. And as we're going to see, this is going to be really the political gotcha question. If you're into politics, if you follow you know, political journalism at all, you know what a gotcha question is like, right? You know, Mr. President, why do you hate our troops? You know, like, like an answer with, with no good answer. Like something presumed in it that's pretty, you know, you don't want to admit to or anything like that. Uh, something uh, with just really no good way to respond, that's what they're going to do. That's the plan. And to do it, they bring in some backup. Verse 16. And they, the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So there's two groups that are coming to Jesus, which is going to be fairly significant to what they do here. There's, on the one hand, the disciples of the Pharisees. On the other hand, there is the Herodians. Now, we've gotten to know the Pharisees pretty well. If you've been with us, uh, you know they're they're the Bible experts. They're the hardcore religious Jews. They're the Israel people. They're the Jewish loyalists. They love the Old Testament. They love their nation. They are loyal to their land. And they bring with them this group called the Herodians, who we're much less familiar with. Historically, we know not a whole lot about them, uh, but the name itself is, is pretty uh, indicative. It tells us really that these are the thugs of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the rulers over this area of the world. When you, when you read the New Testament, you'll find like four or maybe five different Herods, uh, it's, which is very confusing. Which Herod are we talking about here? Uh, all of them are related to one another. They're part of what's called the Herodian dynasty, which, as I said, was this uh, family that ruled over Judea under the authority of Rome. So they served the Roman Empire, but they got to kind of be these puppet kings over the land where Jesus is. And so this is Herod Antipas, the current ruler. And Herod Antipas is the same Herod who uh, killed John the Baptist, beheaded him. Uh, He's the same Herod who will play a significant role in Jesus' trial in just a few days. Uh, and what's important for us to remember here is that he is a, 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 someone who represents Roman rule in the land. As I said, he's a puppet king. He's a sellout who the Romans have allowed to you know, be in authority under them in Judea. And he's, so these are his people that have come with the Pharisees. They're the Herodians. And so what we have really is two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who should not be getting along. They shouldn't be friends with one another. It doesn't make any sense. This isn't just, you know, the the Red Sox and the Yankees. They have trouble, you know, having dinner together. No, no, no. This is the Jewish loyalists who want Rome gone, and it's the Roman loyalists who get rich by oppressing their own people. These are two groups that shouldn't be friends with each other. They shouldn't be on the same side, but they've made some political calculation that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and Jesus is such a significant enemy now that we need to do whatever it takes to get him out of here. So they're going to try to lay a trap and having both groups there is going to serve the trap that they lay. And they, they start that trap with some flattery. Verse 16, the second half, they came to him saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Plain and simple, you can just hear it in the tone I'm trying to read that with, they're just buttering them up. Right, they're coming to Jesus and they're just pouring on the flattery. And it's, it's so over the top and ridiculous. I mean, we've, we've seen these guys again and again. They don't, they don't believe what they're saying. It's, it's just pure performance. It's like several weeks ago when I told Jared I liked his beard. I was just looking for some more vacation days, right? No one liked his beard. Thankfully he shaved, but it's just performance, right? It's not actually authentic. It's just trying to, you know, butter him up. But don't miss miss the irony here. The irony is that everything they say is true. Everything they say in this, you know, buttering him up, this false flattery, everything is actually true. Jesus is true. He does teach the way of God truthfully. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He isn't swayed by appearances. That's who he is. They're just describing the Jesus that they've actually gotten to know. They just don't believe it. And more ironic still is that the descriptions they're using are themselves a revelation of his divine identity. That last little compliment that they give him is almost a direct quote from the Old Testament. So they say you're not swayed by outward appearances, and that, that should be familiar if we remember 1 Samuel 16. So in 1 Samuel 16, God is, uh, has sent the prophet Samuel to find the king for Israel, and it's going to be David, as we'll see. But Samuel gets to Jesse. He's been told it's one of Jesse's sons, so he, he gets there, and he, you know all the sons are lined up except for David. He's off with a sheep or something, uh, and Samuel's pretty impressed. Um, he's looking at Jesse's sons, and he's like, man, these guys, they're good-looking. They're jacked. They're tall, I mean, one of these guys is going to be the king. This is pretty awesome. They're, they're pretty impressive. They look like warriors, right? This, one of them is going to be the king, so Samuel's pretty sure he's found the guy. Then God says to him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Why? For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. So the description that the Pharisees give Jesus as they're, they're trying to butter him up, they unwittingly use the same language to describe Jesus that God uses to describe himself. He's not swayed by outward appearances. And I remember if you were here last week, Jared pointed that he just had a really helpful point on how sin is dumb. And that's what we're seeing here. It's just dripping with irony. They're so blind. They're saying true things without even realizing it. And then after this nice foundation of flattery, they spring the trap, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, My mother-in-law has some... uh, property out near Greenville. It was kind of a cabin in the woods. And uh, when no one's there, she leaves these little sticky traps on the floors to kind of catch the critters that might come in from outside. You might be familiar with these things. Uh, and we always find you know little scorpions or spiders in them. One time we found a snake. That was exciting. It was still alive. Uh, and the worst thing you can do with these little sticky traps on the ground is get your own hand stuck in them. Or my, you know, one-year-old sees them and he's like, oh, what's this, right? Uh, That's the worst thing you can do. This is super glue. You got to get the jaws of life to get this sticky trap off of your hand. And with this question in verse 17, the Pharisees have attempted to just create the sticky trap of all sticky traps. They've attempted to basically bind Jesus hand and foot, put him in a room, surround him with like 500 of those things, and ask him to get out the door totally clean, That's what they think they've done. They've put him in the stickiest, sticky trap you've ever seen. And I'm going to give you five reasons why this is an unbelievably brilliant question. Why this is the stickiest, sticky trap you have ever seen. We're just going to walk word for word through verse 17. Okay, reason number one, why is this such a great question? Reason number one, the kind of question they ask. They start off, they say, what do you think? But they're not actually asking what he thinks, as we're going to see. They're not just asking, is this right? They don't even say, we'd like your opinion. They say to him, is it lawful? Is it lawful? They're asking an exegetical question about how Jesus understands the Old Testament law. So this was a debate back in the first century about taxes. And here's, I'll just kind of give you the generic outline of the debate. So the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 17 says this. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay, so that's what Deuteronomy 17 says. You can have a king, but it has to be a Jew has to be an Israelite. If you have a non-Israelite king, he can't be your king, right? And so from that passage, the way the argument worked in the first century, trying to apply it, is one side would say, God says we can only have an Israelite king. Therefore, if we have a king who's not an Israelite, he's an illegitimate king, and therefore we don't have to pay him taxes. Does that make sense? Uh, If he's not the kind of king the Bible says we must have over us, he's not a real king, so we have this loophole out of having to pay him our taxes. And obviously Caesar's not a Jew, so there's this argument, we don't have to pay him taxes. It's kind of a, you know, an exegetical technicality, but this was a live debate in the first century, and very clearly what they're trying to do by asking a question about the Old Testament is to trap Jesus between having to make a choice between the law of the Lord and the law of the land. Which one are you going to go with, Jesus? We've got these Herodians right here. You better go with, you know, make, not make them angry, right? But which one are you going to go with, the law of the Lord or the law of the land? That's the first reason this is a very tricky question. Reason number two is the assumption within. The question. Now this one's—it's hidden in the Greek. The ESV is a great translation, but there's a little detail that you can only see in the original language, and that's that the word for pay isn't the normal word for paying. The word says pay taxes, it's just the word give. So they don't say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They say, should we give taxes to Caesar? Which is already implying the money doesn't belong to him, I mean, should we just give him, like, should we get just philanthropy, just some charity? Should we give taxes to Caesar? They're already assuming nothing's required. Nothing is owed to him. So, you know, should we conduct a financial philanthropy with these pagans? What do you think, Jesus? That's reason number two. Reason number three, the tax itself that they're referring to. Okay, so the word here used for tax actually designates a particular kind of tax. And it was far and away the least popular tax in the first century. Uh, there, you know, there's all kinds of taxes you could have, taxes for roads, taxes for your business, taxes for you know, in, imports and exports and all these things. This was called a poll tax, which basically means it's a tax for the privilege of existing in Caesar's empire. You don't get anything out of it You know, they're not using it to, you know, build a park for your kids to play at or a public pool if they, you know, had such things in the first century, right? It's just a tax to go in Caesar's pocket because you get to live in his kingdom. Congratulations. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter your, you know, if you own land. It doesn't matter what your job is. You just pay Caesar this tax because you get to live in his empire. And it just makes him rich because he says so. That's that's the tax that they're referring to. So they've picked the least popular tax in the world. Reason four, this is a real sticky, sticky trap, which is one of the more obvious ones, the object of the tax. They don't ask, should we pay taxes, like in a generic way, like to the government, right? This is kind of vague entity, the government. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar, to Caesar. That's the specific kind of tax they're talking about anyway, but also they spell it out, to Caesar. You know Caesar, the, the pagan emperor who sent a big invasive force to conquer and occupy our homeland, who oppresses our people who, with, through extortion, who sends his soldiers to make our lives miserable? Should we pay taxes to him? What do you think? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, should we financially support puppy murderers? What do you think, Jesus? Should we financially support puppy murderers? Is that a a good idea? Which brings us to reason number five. This is a a yes or no question, the way they ask it. They phrase it explicitly. You have to answer with one word. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They they don't want a nuanced discussion. They don't want a a healthy religious debate. They want a one-word soundbite answer. Jesus, say yes or no. And then we'll, we'll figure this thing out. I mean, this is, this is a question, guys. I mean, give, give the Pharisees their due. This is a genius question. You could teach a class on how to ask political gotcha questions from this verse alone. I mean, this is brilliant. They know what they're doing. If he says, yes, pay the tax, he's going to lose the crowds. He's going to lose the crowds. They, they hate the Romans. He's endorsing their oppressor. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, which is probably what they're expecting him to say, the way they've loaded the question so much, that's definitely where they're trying to push him. They've brought the Herodians with them and they can get Jesus arrested for sedition. Team Caesar's right here. They can scurry off, they can get some soldiers, you know, the representatives of Mr. Puppy Murderer himself are here. They can make it happen. It's a lose, lose, lose situation. There's just no way out. Unless of course you're Jesus. Jesus. Verse 18. Jesus says, Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Oh, wait, did I skip a verse? Nope, yeah, that's verse 19. Verse 18. I was like, I don't know what I'm saying yet. Verse 18. <laughs> but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So he sees through the trap right away. Right away, Jesus knows they have malice in their hearts. Right away, he knows this is a trap. And why does he know that? Because he's not swayed by outward appearances, as they've already said, because he's God, because he looks on the heart, because he's not, he's, not just trying to, he's not swayed by someone's opinion or worrying what they think. And he can look in the heart as God looks. And when he looks in their hearts, he sees malice. It's clear as day to him. The flattery didn't work. And then he drops, I mean, really just the original Jesus juke. This is awesome. Uh, they've, they've set him up for failure, right? They've surrounded him with sticky traps. There's no way out. And he basically like casually jumps through the roof and just leaves because he doesn't get pulled into partisan politics. He doesn't play the game. He stands over and above it all with perfect wisdom. Verse 19, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? So pause there. Jesus answers their question with another question. Look at the, He says, bring me the Roman coin, the, the denarius, which is the coin you use to pay this poll tax to Caesar. Bring it to me and tell me whose face you see on it and what it says. And uh, In the first century, this coin, the denarius, would have had Tiberius Caesar's face on it cast on the, the face of the coin, and it would bear the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So he's the son of Augustus Caesar, who's the I think the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, if I'm remembering my history correctly. Uh, and it's the inscription there, this, this idea, son of the divine Augustus, is pretty intense because that's an implicit endorsement of the imperial cult. On the coin itself that you use to pay the tax... It is implying that the emperor deserves worship as a god, as if he's the son of the divine Augustus, who was worshiped as a god. That's the imperial cult. Actually, uh, just barely a generation before this, I mentioned Julius Caesar. One of the reasons Caesar was assassinated was because his head was getting so big, so inflated, he was one of the very first rulers in the Roman Empire to cast his own face on a coin. And that was a big deal because up until that point, only the gods went on coins. It would only be an image of the gods. And Julius Caesar says, let me tell you something about what I think of myself. I'm putting myself on a coin. And that's where we get this whole imperial cult, this worship of the emperors from. So that's what's on the coin. Jesus looks at the coin. He asks whose image is on it, verse 21. They answer him. They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Jesus, in answer to their political gotcha question, gives two commands. Command number one, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Command number two, Render to God the things that are God's. So for the rest of our time together, we're just gonna look at each one of those commands and we're gonna unpack the depths of what Jesus is saying. If you thought the Pharisees could load a sentence with meaning, Jesus does far and above more with just this simple response, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. So first, that first command here, What does it mean, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? This is a blanket exhortation to respect worldly structures of authority, particularly civil governments, by giving them their due. There are things that are due to the civil governments, and it is the duty of those who want to follow Jesus or everyone to give them their due. So look at how generic this statement is. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's assuming there are some things Caesar is due. There's some things the government is owed and the coin for the tax bears his image, so pay the tax. That's clearly part of what Jesus is saying. And this isn't charity. He actually, the word he uses is not the word the Pharisees used. They said, should you give taxes to Caesar? Jesus uses the word pay. Pay to Caesar the things that are his. In other words, yes, it is right to submit to the governing authorities. There's things you owe them, and the bare minimum in the context here is paying your taxes. Son always says. We'll get to the second statement in a little bit, but we do need to just sit for a second in how scandalous that statement is. Because at face value, again, we'll get to the second command, but at face value, it sounds like Jesus is taking the Herodian side. It sounds like he's, he's endorsing Roman rule. I mean, the Pharisees thought Jesus was a God and country kind of guy. I mean, surely, they, they expected him at this point to be getting dragged away by the, by the Herodians. The thugs are here, and they thought he'd say, no, 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 don't pay the tax. The Old Testament doesn't demand that you give this unfair tax to your pagan overlords lords with a coin that implicitly endorses the imperial cult. Of course you shouldn't pay that tax. That's what they expected him to say. They loaded the question expecting that answer. But the first thing he says is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is scandalous. It's shocking for the crowds to hear. But what is going on here? Well, Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, but he is teaching us here what it means to live in a world where the kingdom of God has come in part, but has not yet come in full. This is what it looks like. The expectation for followers of Jesus, citizens of his heavenly kingdom, is one of respectful submission to the governing authorities of the world. Jesus makes no bones about it. That was scandalous in the first century and it's scandalous today. Regardless of your political affiliations. And to get our minds around Jesus would, around why Jesus would say something like that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, because we need to ask the question, what kind of world has God made? What kind of world has God designed? What kind of world do we live in? And the answer, as I said, is in the very first chapter of the scriptures. In Genesis chapter one, the days of creation, very famous, right? God spends the first three days creating kind of various places, different arenas of the world. So day one, he separates the day and the night. Day two, he separates the, the heavens from the waters. Day three, he makes the land, all these kind of different places in the world. And then the next three days, four, five, and six, he puts an authority over each one of them, Animals over the land, creatures in the sea, the sun and moon over the day and the night. And I say authority because that's how the Bible describes it. When he makes the sun and moon, this is what it says, Genesis 1.16. says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The sun and moon are not just there to fill the day and the night, they are there to rule the over them. And then at the end of day 6, kind of this addendum, God installs a king and a queen to reign over all of this. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock of all the earth. You see what he's doing there? Fish, he- or sorry, fish. sea, heavens, and land. Everything, all the different areas I've just described making. He's to have dominion over them, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So all the places and all the things that I just made, I'm putting a king over them. God does not just put humanity in the world to exist in it, but to exercise authority, dominion over it. Why do, I mean, why do I bother showing you that? The sun and moon rule over the day and the night. Who cares? Because it shows us the kind of world God has made. God has made a world organized around authority. He has woven structures of authority into the very fabric of the universe, quite literally, with the sun and the moon. Right? He has woven authority into the fabric of the universe, and after Genesis 1, he continues doing that. So he makes husbands and wives. He makes parents and children. He makes bosses and employees. And he makes government. And the clearest place we see this is Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 1. The whole chapter is about this. I'll just give you the first verse. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? That's interesting. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Why does Jesus say, render to Caesar what the things that belong to Caesar? Because God put Caesar in charge. There's no authority that exists without God putting them there because that's what he does for all leaders, good or bad. God is the one who puts them in place. So the Deuteronomy 17 loophole It's not a legitimate king. If he's not an Israelite, we don't have to pay taxes. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. In an ultimate sense, Caesar is a legitimate king because God put him there. That runs contrary to so many of our assumptions. We think authority is a bad thing when by nature, as God designed it, it is a good thing. It's a part of the good world that God Made. Yes, it's corrupted by sin like everything else. There are awful, oppressive, negligent authorities. Caesar was certainly one of those oppressive ones, but that does not change the fact that this is how God designed his world to work. Even in a sinful world, civil government is a gift of common grace and it has a purpose. It has a purpose. And we actually get that purpose particularly spelled out for us in 1 Peter 2. So Peter, who, by the way, his audience is most likely being persecuted by the governing authorities, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So we're talking about Caesar and Herod, basically. Sent by him to punish those who do good and to praise those who do, sorry, punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That is... The purpose of civil government to punish evil and to praise good. That's how it's supposed to function. There's no way around it. I mean, Peter's saying this about the Roman government. The Bible has a very, very high view of civil authorities, it is meant to be a blessing. Uh, I have a a buddy from college who, his dad uh, was a U.S. ambassador. And so my friend has lived in, I don't know, like, He told me one. He counted them for me. It's like 40 or 50 countries. He's been all over the world, right? And I remember one time I was with him on the Fourth of July, watching the fireworks, and he asked a really good question. He he said, uh, "What is your favorite thing about living in America?" And I probably said something, you know, generic like freedom or football, right? Uh, You know, something lame. Although those are great things. Uh, When I asked his answer, it was surprising. So, what's your favorite thing about living in America, having lived around the world? And he said, I really appreciate how much people obey the government here. And I had two thoughts. I thought, first of all, Americans obey the government. And second, I said, that's the, that's the most exciting. Is your favorite thing. Have you ever watched a football game? Have you ever eaten apple pie? Like what's, come on, man. But his point His point was he'd lived across the world. He had seen that in general, when citizens respect the government, when they obey the authorities over them, there is a blessing to it. Society thrives and flourishes. In general, there's a common blessing when you submit to the governing authorities God has placed over you. And so my question, brothers and sisters, is do you view view civil authority as a blessing or as a curse? Or do you view authority in general as a blessing or as a curse? Authority is a a bad word for many people today. We buck against, we resist God's design for the world. I'm in authority over my kids, and they, you know, they want to, you know, skydive off the bunk bed, and I say no, and they don't like that. Right? You, what do we do all the time at work? We complain about our boss. We don't like authority. And at best, we gripe about the government. That's at best. Obviously, things can be far worse. But one of our favorite pastimes is griping about the government, the civil authorities God has put over us. I mean, let's let's call this what it is. We're in Texas. My wife grew up here. She had a dog named Rebel. Why? Because Texans love rebellion, right? That's what it's all about. And my warning, very simply, brothers and sisters, my warning to you is be careful with that. Rebellion's not a biblical virtue. Don't mess with Romans 13. Don't mess with 1 Peter 2 or what Jesus says here. Rebellion is not a biblical virtue. I'm aware there are increasing cultural and political pressures against the Christian worldview. That's true in our society today. But that's what Paul and Peter's audience were experiencing far more than we do, and they, too, felt the need to remind them that part of the Christian worldview, part of the Christian worldview is that the governing authorities were instituted by God. So our guiding aim is to respect them and to give them their due. Now, obviously, the government isn't above critique. No worldly authority should have blind obedience. We'll get to that in just a minute. But start by recognizing that in the beginning... God made authority and he made it for his own good purposes and to live along the grain of God's world we need to submit in respect to the authorities that God has put over us. So how do we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? How do we what do we owe the governing authorities? Well the Bible gives many commands. We've seen some of them first Peter and Romans 13 we owe them our obedience. We owe our honor to our leaders. We owe our submission, but just to hone in on the central issue Jesus is addressing here, we pay our taxes. I mean, Jesus, he doesn't ask if people like the tax. He doesn't ask if Caesar's a particularly good guy. He wasn't. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus knows how God designed the world to work. And so paying your taxes is the bare minimum of a Christian's duty to the government. Very simply, if you believe all taxation is theft, you have adopted an unbiblical worldview. You have allowed a political opinion to trump the biblical teaching on taxation. That is not a position Christians can hold. Rebellion is not a biblical virtue. Obedience to the governing authorities is, it doesn't matter if you like the president or his policies, you pay your taxes. That's the first command that Jesus gives here, but we need to be careful lest we think Jesus is just taking the Herodian side. As I said, it it seems with that first answer, he's just, the Herodians are right. You guys are wrong. Pay your taxes. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not taking a side. He's showing everyone else the side they need to be on because what he says next fundamentally relativizes the authority of every government. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. If taxes and the like belong to Caesar, what is it that belongs to God? That's the question we have to ask. What is God's due? And the answer begins with a question Jesus already asked. He took a Roman coin. He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And the word likeness, the word image should take our minds all the way back to an Old Testament passage we've already looked at. Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus takes the coin with Caesar on it and says, Whose image is this? And the logic is simple. It's Caesar's image. It belongs to him. And the question that is a far better question, the one he invites us to ask next, is whose image are you? Then you belong to him. God has woven authority into the fabric of the universe because God is the supreme authority he stands over and above all especially those made in his image so our duty our primary fundamental baseline overarching duty is to render ourselves to him remember we saw the days of creation show us the structure of authority what happened on day 7 the king of kings stepped back to relax and enjoy his kingdom That's why this fundamentally relativizes the authority of earthly governments. Sure, Caesar and the United States government have authority, but only because God gave it to them. And to whatever degree they demand obedience, contrary to God's commands, they ought not be obeyed. There is a higher king. There is a more supreme authority. They have their place, but they are not at the top of the pyramid. No earthly government deserves you. They can have your taxes, but only God should have you. That's why in Acts chapter five, the early Christians are arrested and they're told to stop preaching about Jesus. And I just love their response. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered. You don't want us to stop preaching Jesus? Okay, we must obey God rather than men. I love that. I love that for two reasons. One, they're still respecting their authorities. They're not like, oh, you don't want us to preach Jesus? Down with the system, right? You know, they're, they're still being respectful. They're just like, sorry, God rules everything. We're going to submit ourselves to him. We're going to do what he says. You bear the image of God, brothers and sisters. You were made in his likeness. So your primary duty in life is to render your, yourself to him. That is your duty, and that's true for all people, but it's especially true if you're a Christian. Because to be united to Christ is not only to bear God's image, it is also to be conformed to that image and to have his inscription upon your heart. Remember that the denarius that Jesus held in his hand that had Tiberius' face and the inscription Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, if you are in Christ, he is inscribed upon your life, son or daughter of God. That's what Jesus came to do, to bring, to to ransom for God a people, to bring them into his family. And he did that by walking into another trap they set for him. One day, just a few days after this, the governing authorities will come for him. They will arrest him in the night. They will arraign him on trumped up charges and they will crucify the king of kings as a rebel. But it won't be because they finally outsmarted him. It won't be because he was finally bested by earthly authorities. It will be because this was his plan to reclaim his own kingdom. The world has fallen into rebellion and sin because we're the rebels. We committed insurrection against him. They shouted at him during his trial. What do they say? We have no king but Caesar. That's what we've all chosen to do. We've chosen to say no to God. We're going to take earthly authority instead. We don't want God's rule in our lives. But on the cross, on the cross, the king came for the rebels. The King of Kings was willingly killed by earthly authorities to reclaim this broken world and to fundamentally reestablish his reign where? In your heart. And our response is simply, joyfully, to give ourselves to him, to live for him, to put our faith in him, to render to him what is his. And in that exchange, in us giving ourselves to him, what is his due, we receive his righteousness and he becomes our king and he adopts us into his family so that we become sons and daughters of God. Jesus is not after just your stuff. That's a mistake we always make. We think he's You know, just after our money, or he's just after our, you know, our Sunday morning, some time from our week. He's not after those things primarily, he's after you. Sure, let the government have your tax money, but give yourself to God. He alone is worthy of your heart because His authority, the gospel itself, fundamentally relativizes the authority of any earthly government, but it also fundamentally relativizes your relationship to any earthly authority. We don't put our hope there. Yeah, sure, we submit to the governing authorities, but we don't look to them for our hope or our joy or our expectations for the new world to be made. And they try to trap Jesus, he refused to be a pawn of political interests. He refused to take a side, because they need to be on his side. And this is something, brothers and sisters, we all need to cling to, particularly in an election year in America. Because the fervor, the heat of an election year will stir up our hearts to think, this candidate or this policy, that's our hope. That's what we need. but Christ stands over and above all our political hopes. Not because those things are unimportant. I'm not saying don't care about those things. You should care about those things. But we must always remember that Caesar, Joe Biden, Donald Trump will all answer to God and so will you. That is where our due is, that's where we're fundamentally to give ourselves to him, not to any earthly political hopes, but to the God who reigns now in our hearts and one day will reign across the lands. The ultimate political question, brothers and sisters, is whose image do you bear? And if you bear his image, you belong to him. So Parkway Church, let us render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and let us render to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father, we come and we confess how quickly we look to lesser things, how frequently and easily our hearts are wrapped up in the desires of this world in earthly hopes and also especially in giving ourselves to things that don't deserve us. You alone are worthy of all that we are. You alone should have our hearts. And so we pray. We would day by day give ourselves to you. We would, sure, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we would especially render to God the things that are God's. Help us to do that by your grace, we pray. Amen.